0: Today we go back to the 16-bit era with Sega Genesis games including Shining Force 2, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Streets of Rage 2, and
1: King's Bounty. Come listen to what Sega Genesis does that Nintendo don't.
0: Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our first game for today, Shining Force 2. Well, listeners, this is going to be quite an epic journey that we're about to embark on together. Shining Force 2 is, for me, by far the most influential game of my life. And my journey to actually get the game, to acquire the game, to play the game, it took many winding roads and paths that at times ended in despair and in others, finally, in triumph. So, before I get into everything, I just need to point out some basics about the game. These are all Sega Genesis games that we're talking about today, but Shining Force 2 is one of the defining games of that era. It was released in 1993 in Japan, and then released the next year in the U.S., and this was classified as a tactical strategy RPG, there aren't really that many of them uh, in general that you find on a lot of consoles. And especially back then, it was a bit rare. But being that this was Shining Force 2, there had been a predecessor that was a similar play style. Now, Shining Force 2 puts you into the position of having to save the world, which, of course, is pretty much a standby for a lot of RPGs. Uh, There's also a princess to save at the same time, so double stakes that we're dealing with here. Now, I think that this princess and your quest to save her is a lot more compelling than what you see in Mario, uh, because there are actually personalities to these characters. They're very well drawn. But your main character is a typical quiet, non-speaking type character. Now, of course, Nobody speaks in the game, it's all text. There wasn't actually voiced acting at this point in time. But you really get to shape all of the characters in the game because they level up, gaining experience points from defeating monsters, and they grow from battle to battle as they develop new skills. You can even find secret items to promote your characters to different classes rather than the default uh, promotion classes in the game. And ultimately, this spans a very long playtime for a game that's on a cartridge. It brings in elements of mythology from all around the world, even though this is a Japanese game, as most were at the time. It brings in a lot of Western-type themes with castles and knights and kings and... Even references Native American mythology with a special ship that you get to fly called the Nazca ship. So lots of stuff going on here. And for somebody who was pretty young at the time, uh, this was maybe a year or two after release that I first encountered the game. So I would have been roughly seven or eight years old at the time it was a whole new world just opened up to me of all these different possibilities. So before I go any further explaining the game and really getting into my journey with it here, um, let me throw it over to Paul for a second. Do you have any initial thoughts about this game? Just your initial impressions, how you came to know it, that sort of thing.
1: Oddly enough, and as crazy as it sounds, This game is of an equal impact for me (laughs) as it was for you. It was arguably the most influential game of my childhood. And it's a game I've even picked up since I was a kid. And it was so impactful. The friend that initially lent us the game actually went by Chaz, a character in the game. His Facebook and everything went by Chaz. I know your username was because of, of this game. My brother went by Red Baron because of this game. And the soundtrack was so memorable, I still sing
0: songs in the shower about this song to this day. Did you know that there is a symphonic recording of the soundtrack that exists?
1: I feel like I should make one because <laughs> I've got a pretty banger tune to it, but that's amazing. It's okay. so good. It's so good. And we loved it so much. I, I remember my brother and I, we even would go to the backyard and actually pretend to play the game live. Since we could only borrow it and we loved it so much, we wanted to play it more. And so I would be Jaha or a different character from the game. And we'd face imaginary monsters. We'd get experience. We'd level up. And we would just we'd go in the backyard and play it. That's how obsessed I was with this game. And I, I too, have an infinite amount of things to say about this. But I'll throw it back to you as to your particular experience with it.
0: Well, I love that game, first of all, that you played in the yard. I wish I had thought of that. But, yeah, it was... How do I even explain something that is this foundational to who I became? I mean, this might sound like exaggeration, but it really isn't because when you're that age and something which I would argue video games are a work of art, when a work of art impacts you that strongly, that young, it has reverberations for years. And the way that I first encountered Shining Force two was actually at my cousin's house. Now, at the time, I didn't yet have a Sega system. And my cousin had actually not only the system, but also something that was called Sega Channel. If you don't remember Sega Channel, it was revolutionary uh, at the time as well. It was an early version of essentially a gaming streaming service. You had a special box that you would connect to the cable in your house, and you would be able to access the Sega channel that you had to pay probably, I, I would assume, a monthly fee or maybe even a yearly fee in order to have the service. And then every month, different games would be available to play, and then they would swap out from month to month. So he was playing this game. I remember very clearly, as we all probably do, being down in the basement where the games were set up, as they were in many people's houses, and playing Shining Force 2, or at least watching him play. Uh, Shining Force 2 being the type of strategy RPG that it is, where you move characters around a a map and then strategically decide when to attack your targets on a turn-based system, it is really a one-player game, although... You can talk strategy with the other people there, of course, with your friends and, you know, who you want to use to attack which character, uh, because there is a lot to be done as far as planning your strategy and who you want to get experience points in that battle for getting kills on enemies and the like. But I mainly was watching him play and I was just. It might have been the music, it might have been the visuals of the sort of fantasy world that it's set in. Uh, It was probably a combination of all of these factors but I wanted nothing more than to have that game. It became an obsession for me and I was not able to have it for a long time until we got the Sega Genesis system when you would assume that I could go ahead and get the game. Well, the problem was this was not an easy-to-find game. Shining Force 2 did not have a large print run within the United States. Now, in Japan, it's actually a best-selling game, but in, in America, these sorts of strategy games, tactical games, they simply just weren't as popular as they were in Japan. So, by the time that I was hunting for the game, this was now probably at least two years after the fact from when it was released, it didn't exist in stores. You simply could not go to a toy store and and buy the game. I spent a very long time hunting for it, and I eventually had to go to rentals. Okay, because I couldn't actually get one to purchase. Let me ask you a question: Is Shining Force Two a good game to be experiencing via rental?
1: Absolutely not. No, it's it would be like renting Skyrim. You don't do it. It's bad idea. You need to sit with it. No, absolutely not. You can't rent it. And I'm not sure. I don't remember if it even has a save feature that would trans like would transfer from card. I I'm not sure if it you did it use codes or and passwords or how
0: did you access your game? No, it did not use passwords, it, it had a save battery in the cartridge. So whenever you, and this comes into play later, so hang on to that idea. But whenever you would rent a game and you had a save file on that cart, you knew when you took it back to the store that some other lame kid was going to rent the game and delete your files. It was inevitable. So I played the opening part of this game. Uh, Probably from the very beginning up and through maybe where you flee Granzel uh, whenever the earthquake happens. That section of the game over and over and over again. But I could never actually get a, a, a permanent copy of the game for myself. Finally, I found the secondhand video game store which, again, at the time, I feel like there weren't that many of. There was one within my radius of my house that my parents would actually take me to. I put in a request at this store. Keep in mind, I was probably eight or nine years old, something like that. And I put in a request at the store that if a copy of this game ever came in to call me so that I could get it. Well, lo and behold, one day, a copy did come in. And I went and got it immediately, brought it back home. I played through the first part, saved my game. I was ecstatic. I was, This is the best day of my life. Went to bed, got up the next day to play the game. And I was greeted with an error message from, if you remember at the very beginning, when you are doing that menu, there's sort of this witch character that you talk to while you're selecting your file and everything. And the witch says to me, there's a problem with save slot, whatever it was, one or two. And then said, he, 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 oh, it's gone. And then my save file disappeared. Well, I took the game back to the store only to find out that the save battery that actually allows you to save your progress had failed in the cartridge. And they had no means of replacing it. If this was to happen today, I could easily replace one myself with batteries purchased from eBay and a soldering gun. But back then, you couldn't even open the cartridge because they used special screws and screwdrivers to get into it to open it. So once again, I was thrust into the depths of despair, not able to play the game. Did you ever have a problem with a save battery failing back in those days? I do remember. The witch message. But
1: <laughs> so must have happened at some point. But I, you know, again, along with most of my other games, as our listeners probably know, we had a very close friend that lent us all our games. And so that's where I got the game from. And thankfully I was able to play it through without an issue. And then later on, when I would replay it, and I probably replayed it every every few years. I used a ROM. So I didn't I didn't run into that issue at that point
0: yeah so roms definitely will get you around any of those problems uh but at this point in time this was well before we had a computer and so that wasn't an option so at this point in time how long have i been hunting for the game you know this story has such a mythic place in my mind that i can't accurately remember exactly how long it was but when you're a kid It seems like your entire life when you want something that bad and you can't have it only and then to have it taken away, essentially, because now I have a broken cartridge of it. Finally, and this is the happy ending to the story. One of the video stores, it was in a grocery store called Shop and Save. There was a rental area in that store. That, and I guess this part isn't so good. It went out of business as was starting to happen around that time that rentals were starting to get a little bit hairy. You know, they were starting to have some competition, especially with game rentals. When that store closed, I was able to purchase the cartridge that I used to rent all the time from the store. And I still have it to this day. I have the cartridge. Yeah, <laughs> I mean this is a
1: love story. I mean this yes. is this is the Notebook
0: here. If you're a bird, I'm a bird. Wow, I'm speechless. I I mean I wish that I don't even know how to process this right now. Like I, it's it, it is it really poetic. I mean it works. It works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. It works. The cartridge, the sticker on the front is damaged because it was a rental, so people. You know, messed it up. I do have a more pristine, like, complete in box copy of the game as well. Um, But I still have that original cartridge. And I did replace the save battery again recently just to make sure that it would keep working. So, yeah, it, it is still in working order. But the fact, after all that, and I'm going to just say pain, because when you're a kid, this sort of thing like makes or breaks your entire world, essentially, after all of that, to to get that cartridge, it, it was just poetic beyond words. It lends itself to the theory that the the time you wasted on your roast, this is ex- exuberant,
1: made it that important to you. Because that's an adventure. And I, I couldn't even do that. I mean, I'm trying to think of how you as a kid were able to do that. I mean, I, I couldn't even rent my own games, by and large. As far as I know, you'd have to have your own account. You'd have to have your own money, I, how did you do it? I mean, how, did you have your parents help and consent to do it?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't have any other option. Yeah, my parents would rent it for me. My mom in particular, whenever we would go to the grocery store, I would just like beg her to get it and then she would rent it. Yeah, my parents had to pay for it. I mean, there's no way I could have gotten, gotten it on my, well, I guess some, depending on how lax the employees were, if you just had the money and you told them like, you know, I think it might've been like my parents, like if they had a, like a, like a, like a loyalty card to the store or whatever it was, like, I think they may have put it on the account. Like if you had the money, but I think I always pretty much, yeah, had to have one of them get it for me. I take it that uh, in your household renting, was not really much of an option. No, I, I don't think I ever rented a game
1: my entire life with gr- growing up. I later did, but nope, wasn't an option. <laughs> As I said, I, my friend was my rental. He was the one I went to. I had to
0: use my friends to get rentals. And did your brothers make you pay like $20 <laughs> in order to? <laughs> no,
1: thankfully that was nice. Is-
0: <laughs> thankfully that was an isolated incident. Glad to hear thankfully it. It was an isolated incident. But. So, But that's that's my whole thing uh, with, you know, the how I came to the game. I still have said almost nothing about the game itself, despite the little little bit at the beginning. But I feel like the most important thing and I do want to point out to the listeners, just because we cover a game on this sort of episode where we kind of survey a bunch of them. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't come back to it in more detail, especially if there are requests. These where we're these episodes where we're doing a bunch of games, like we did with the Nintendo 64, it's more about our personal experiences with the games than getting into the nitty gritty of the game. So if that's something that you want to hear, please let us know. But I think what's important now is to hear from you. Cause you said that this was equally as influential. We could, we could do a deep
1: delve into this game and pretty much all these games. When we talk about it, I mean, wh- when we have these very personal connections with these games, I mean, this is like, especially cause you're kids, you have so much free time. We're talking months and years of our lives devoted to this. I mean, this is a game that we can deep dive each character, how we, how to build them utility in each boss fight. We could do different runs. The possibilities are endless.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, they are totally. And there's uh it's and it would be a joy every bit of it because it's just such, I, I, w- I argue that this is, for me, I'm not going to claim objectively, but for me, this is the greatest game of all time, so I could go on about it forever. The reason I love the game, and the reason I was in the backyard with my brother
1: doing what we did, is honestly, I think the main appeal to the game for me was this zero-to-hero mantra of the game, which applies to our my dreams, probably your dreams, of just being a zero, call to action, and then becoming a hero. And I just remember being in the final battles, how moving those final battles were. You have this epic music, you have these epic villains, and you just remember in the beginning, they were just students. They were in in class. And then this earthquake happens. They didn't want that. They didn't call for it. There's kids in school. And then this earthquake happens and they're thrust into this epic adventure. And they're just trying to learn about the world. And yet they're thrown into this, we got to save the world because who else will if we don't? And it takes me back to Lord of the Rings when Frodo talks to Gandalf and Golems there. And Frodo says, I wish this didn't happen to me in my time. And Gandalf tells him, So do all who
0: live to see such times,
1: but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And that's what this was. And so these characters, they're all so little, weak and tiny and that they're thrust into this amazing adventure and so you begin this this adventure of courage and you got this little kid bowie who's becomes a strong hero at the end sarah has this little stick and she beats people over the head and then at the end she's this super powerful monk punching people jaha goes from this little weak axe guy to this amazing soldier peter's this little bird it becomes a phoenix on and on every character starts at this weak unassured self, and then becomes this powerful hero at the end. Man, that's what really hit to me. And I think that connects to everybody. That that idea that you could be called from your weakest spot. And as long as you're in the pursuit of good, you'll become strong in the end. And you could be used to save the world to do good. That to me is what was powerful about the game.
0: Oh, I mean, 100%. And, oh, the Gandalf quote, that that hit me right right there. That was, it's a good thing that I muted myself because, you know, I was getting teary with that. But I think that the zero to hero situation is a huge part of it. One thing that I really liked was how, this is going to sound maybe a little bit strange, but I'm thinking other people felt the same way. I loved how this game had the free-roaming segments in the towns. So in between battles, right, uh, battle maps, you would be in villages, uh, you would walk around and interact with NPCs, and you would search uh, for, like, treasure chests or hidden secrets, of which there were quite a few. You would search for mithril, which you later on could take to a secret village to make more powerful weapons. Much later on, by the way, you had to hold on to it pretty much for the whole game in some cases. And so but going around these little environments and exploring uh, was a huge draw to me. I, I mean, I like the battles a lot, but I I wanted to inhabit the world that this was set in. And this is well before something like Skyrim, where you're walking around a fully th- interactive environment. So it's a top down view and you're looking at your little guy on the screen walking around as he goes and enters buildings and talks to people. The sounds are still so ingrained in my mind, like the satisfying noise that a door makes whenever you walk through it. As a kid, I just wanted to live in that fantasy world. This was well before I ever read, like, The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, that I was experiencing. Shining Forest 2 in the form of this video game and these fantasy creatures like elves and goblins and everything that comes along with that. And I would spend probably hours just in villages like searching bookcases to see what the names of the books were or talking to every person in the town. Uh, When you start the very beginning, one of the most memorable things is, like you said, you're in a school with your classmates and it feels like this could be my life i'm here at school your teacher sir astral is up at the board and he's starting his lesson uh later on when you go downstairs in the school if you search the bookcases there's one that says um something like shining Four strategy guide or you know uh, sega strategy guide and then it says that sounds good and uh, it's all these little nods to the person playing the game that you could tell that the creators just loved what they were building, and that's something that's been irrevocably lost in these big budget AAA titles that we have today. You know these these games, especially Shining Force too. You had a team of maybe like a dozen people at most that made this entire game, and the attention to detail, the love they put into it. I feel like even as a kid, I could feel that. And it was just, it was like escaping to this fantasy world. I don't know if everyone listening loved going to school and always had a good day at school or never had problems with bullies or homework or whatever. But for me, a lot of times I wanted to escape that life. And going into this world was the way that I did that. Yeah, one of my favorite things to do, and I did this growing up with everything
1: from Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, this, I would daydream and dream about this. This is what I would go to bed with. And I would relive me as the main character going through this. So having this deep environment really catered to that. And I just remember the the battles were so epic. It wasn't just a bunch of random fighting. Each environment was special. And so Remember the the rat fight when you get shrunk and you have the cheese and you got the chess battle with the rook, king, queen, everything. The kraken fight was so epic in that boat. King Gollum. These were so, they really built up the environment completely and then led to a battle that was completely unique and special and different from every other battle. And so it wasn't just walking around. Hey, here's an encounter. Hey, here's an encounter. Let me grind. I think I feel like a lot of fan- Final Fantasy series is like that, where it's like you're just running into random encounters and just grinding, grinding, grinding. And then maybe you have a boss fight every X amount. But I feel like this game was very strict with, we'll have some random encounters, but by and large, we're going to be focusing on the environments with these unique battles. And they all stick with me. I mean, they all stick with me because they were so special and built up, you know, odd eye, like, oh man, that just it hits so hard because it's built up into this battle
0: that's so exceptional. Oh, and the the build was fast. That that was the thing, was the plot that they created. It you just wanted to know what was going to happen next in the story, which isn't something that you always get in game, very rarely that you get in games that you really care about the story, the plot. Uh, How many games have you played where you just click through all the dialogue or tutorials and stuff and you're just like, whatever, let's go. This game was the opposite. You wanted to live and breathe in every moment of it. And I'm sure some element of it was that since we were kids, we had all this time. Like, that's all you have is time when you're a kid. So you could really just live through it, like you said, and and, and imagine everything and, and relive it. You know, the the storyline, the characters were so well drawn, literally and figuratively. The artwork's beautiful, too, I think. Uh, King Gollum, you know, when he's possessed, is one of the scariest villains I have ever seen in my life. He looks demonic. Like, it is terrifying. There are so many good, positive characters as well. Uh, so many of your friends that you join up with, Of course, there are some characters who absolutely are horrible no matter what you do with them, but that's even fun because you can do playthroughs where you play with an intentionally weakened force where you let in only the weaker members and see how you can do with that. Uh, One of the characters who is by far the standout to me is Kazin. Kazin, of course, you meet up very early in the game He has a kind of sad backstory because his master who's teaching him to be a mage uh, is killed in the search for the uh, these notes about something called ground seal that the bad guys are searching for. And then he joins up with your force. And so he has this really interesting arc where he has that backstory and then he's with you the whole way to the end at the end. It turns out that he actually has, A romance with one of the other characters which you see in the very last scene of the game which I'm not going to spoil Uh, but I always wanted to be him he was the one that I always wanted to be able to use magic to be a wizard to have all that knowledge and that sort of ability like he had Um, even today as you mentioned my gamer handle which I have used for since forever like over 20 years probably is named after that character so uh that's yeah i i still bring that with me to every game that i play i i either use that handle or if it's a single player game i name my character kazin i always do it with every game do you um Have anything, uh, well, anything you wanted to add or that you brought forward with you from the game like that? Well, I have a question for you Did Mm -hmm. you ever make his in a sorcerer where he would summon Apollo? Yes, yes, I did. I did. Is it viable? Uh, yeah, actually, he's really good. He gets some really good spells as a sorcerer. I think objectively, like if you go to the, um, you know, the Ultimate Shining Force 2 guide online, which we both used, of course. I think objectively, if you look at stats, um, uh, Tyran is better as a sorcerer, but Kazin is just cool. He has a cooler backstory. He looks cooler. Um, I do prefer to use him as a wizard and use his blaze spells. But if you go sorcerer, yeah, he's, he's very good. He he gets really good, really good spells. What I liked about the game
1: is the fact that it wasn't a grinding game, the way you see a lot of RPGs. I mentioned Final Fantasy, but even a lot of the RPGs now, you can even go to the Diablo games. I feel like so much is about grinding, grinding, grinding to get gear. Shining Force is really about maximizing each battle because each battle was somewhat unique, especially the, you know, the boss fights, and trying to cater certain characters to get maximum experience. So Frank, so you mentioned Kazen being your favorite character. One of my favorite characters was Kiwi. He was a little, he's this little turtle
0: and you, um, he's, he's the only other a character. Secret character, right? He's because he, you can miss him. Some characters are missable, right? So you have yeah. to go into this little shack where he's hiding at one point, right? Cause there's an earthquake that, breaks open this cage that he was being kept in. And then you have to recruit him. So he's a secret character.
1: He was really cute. So that's why I would always pick him. And I was always curious because Slade, I mean, Slade becomes incredibly strong. He's, He's an example of a weak character in the beginning that once you level him up, you feed him a little bit, he becomes really strong. So I was like, hey, Kiwi's like that. Now Kiwi though is really difficult to level up because Kiwi is hitting for maybe like one or two damage a shot. You know, he throws his little, like, crown. And so you have to almost orchestrate your entire fight around dealing just enough damage to leave him alive and have Kiwi get the kill. Because in Shining Force, attacks, you get some experience based on the amount of damage you deal. Kiwi doesn't deal a lot of damage, so it doesn't get a lot of experience. But even if you deal a lot of damage, you're not getting a lot of experience from it. But if you get a kill, you're getting 49 experience. So you want Kiwi to get the kill, so you have to feed Kiwi over and over again. And so that's part of the strategy of the game. It's not one you, you want to go back and just do battles over and over and over again. And so you really want to have a strong troop. But if you do want to train a Kiwi or a Slade or a Luke, <laughs> you have to kind of feed them a little bit. Unfortunately, Kiwi, when you level Kiwi up, does not have the Slade experience. Gets a nice, you know, fire breath, random proc. But other than that, huge armor, but never gets health, never gets magic resistance. And so you ends up getting one shot from any spell at the end of the game. So it doesn't work out as well, but that's part of the game is trying to, you know, maneuver characters to level them up. And with Slade, you get really low risk, high reward for someone like that. And, and that's a lot of it's party building and strategy, not just in winning the battle, but also how you're going to use your troops. Obviously, unless you're talking about Karna, which we will get to later, that's kind of the, the rule of thumb.
0: Oh, definitely. I, before we get to Karna, I'll just mention, uh, the way that experience works, I really liked, and when I would play other games afterwards, the experience systems would often frustrate me because they didn't work like Shining Force. Each level is always out of 100 experience points. I hate it in a lot of RPGs how the experience that you need for a level is like an arbitrary amount that just like grows as, as it goes on. It's like at first you need 100 points, and then you need... like 500 and then you need 2,000 and then you need like 20,000 like that's how it is in a lot of these games but in Shining Force every level it's 100 points and you could predict in battles if you got a kill like you said you would get probably 49 maybe 50 experience points pretty reliably but if your character was higher level they wouldn't it would tear down like you would if you have a character who's like really above everyone else and they get a kill they're only getting like one or two experience points uh, and it made it so that you could really easily figure out what you needed to do with certain characters to get them to where they you wanted them to be i just think it's a very intuitive type system but karna is able to circumvent some of this uh she's sort of a broken character if we can say that would you like to explain more about karna
1: she i mean she is a broken character and i'll take credit (laughs) because i figured it out on my own but using the spell boost there is no cap so you mentioned when you get a high enough level you get one experience point per kill well karna using the boost you get the 49 experience with 100 experience cap every time (laughs) so while the game itself does not cater itself to farming for the reasons you expressed, Karna can do that no problem because she can just get in a battle, boost, get the 49 experience over and over again. Um, once, Obviously, the boost does have to run out, but then she can do it again. So I would, I, <laughs> one of my playthroughs, I soloed the final boss with Karna with her just max level because why not? You know, why not? Like, why not solo the boss with her because she just gets unlimited levels. And that's, again, first playthrough didn't do that. Kind of glitching. And, but I do love the general idea behind it because it's like you said, you almost have to involve all the characters. I think a lot of the Final Fantasies, especially the later ones, they share experience. Even the later Pokemons, they share experience. So you can have Pokemon on your bench, you don't even do anything, who aren't even in the battle. Now, Pokemon, originally, you put them in, pull them out. Now, games are designed where it's like you could just put someone in the back row and they're getting experience and they're leveling up just by existing. How does that make any sense? Like you should at least have to get a kill or contribute somewhat to the fight, right?
0: No, it's absurd. I, that, that's, that's a design of modern games that I find to be a little ridiculous. And the other thing was in, 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 shining force, they, the shining force two, well, the original one too, but they did such a good job of giving the characters personality that you would genuinely want to use the characters. It was fun To see those characters um, grow and they were so unique from each other. It's not like in some of the earlier Final Fantasy games, maybe not later, but some of the earlier ones where you just have generic like dark wizard, like black wizard, like, you know, like fighter or cleric or, you know, these were people with fleshed out personalities Some a little bit more than others, but even in between battles, you had a headquarters that you could go to and you could talk to the characters and they would have even some different lines depending on, because there was a cap to how many people could be on the active force at a time, depending on if they were active or if they were inactive, just hanging out uh, in the little area waiting area and you could go around and talk to everybody so stuff like that was just such a nice touch, especially back in the 16-bit era. Well, you mentioned that every character was unique after
1: leveling up. So I mentioned Slade. I mean, Slade becomes a completely different character. He's weak. If you put the time in to level him up, he not only becomes strong with katanas as opposed to daggers, but he gets magic. He becomes a completely different character. Uh, Peter, the same thing. He, you know, He's he's all right in the beginning, but once he becomes a phoenix, completely different character. The list goes on. You know, your main character gets spells, gets bolt when he levels up. So you're almost encouraged to try each character to see, hey, you know, what do they become after I level them up? You you, you almost want to go like Geralt literally becomes becomes a beast. You know, he goes from a boxer <laughs> to a beast. And I always I always loved him. I wish he became better. But every character literally changes who they are. And a lot of the characters, as you know, you can inspect them so you can make him a, a fryer. You can make. You can make them a Master Monk. You can use the different items in the game to kind of spec what their class is going to be as well. So you have different, like, because then you can make them a Wizard or a Sorcerer pending. So there's a lot of a lot of experimenting as well. That's, I think, justified as opposed to just, hey, get a lot of stats or, hey, respec. It's like, no, once you spec, it's over, you're stuck,
0: try a new one. Yeah, and the items are, uh, a lot of the items for those extra classes are, hidden items. So it encourages you to explore the world, like to make Kazin or other mage characters, to make them a sorcerer instead of a wizard. You have to find an object called a secret book, which is hidden. You know, If you don't search around, you won't find it. Uh, It's not an outrageous sort of thing where you wouldn't know without a strategy guide. If you take your time and actually explore the environments, you will find most of these things. But uh, that adds a whole other level of replayability to the game. And there are even uh, some, not a lot, but some items uh, that you can use that do stat increases, uh, like running pimento or the protect milk or the power water, and they will increase, you know, like um, magic or health or strength or whatever. And you can use those to some extent to you know buff certain characters with better stats in, in different areas. So definitely you could you could do so much and as a testament to that, I mean we still replay this game all these years later and you can do things with characters that you've never done before.
1: I will say no matter what you do with Kiwi, you cannot make <laughs> Kiwi viable. You cannot give him enough HP to make him viable. I will say that, I have tried, it doesn't work. But for a character with low movement, if that's the one weakness, give him the pimento, increase the
0: movement, you can be money. But unfortunately, Kiwi is not one of those characters that does that. <laughs> no, Kiwi is a sad uh, case, because like you said, he will always get one-shotted by magic. There's just not anything you can do. But most characters, you can overcome their weaknesses, at least to an extent, to make them viable. And even Kiwi, for, for a certain Part of the game is viable, but it's once you get to that end game, it's it's just game over. So cheating aside, what is your pick for Creed's Mansion of the four characters? Oh, this is oh, man, I'm on the spot here. Okay, so historically, I always liked like the mage type characters. So Tywin was probably my pick as a kid and through most of my playthroughs. Uh, As far as, I mean, Karna is obviously the best choice because she's broken, like you said uh, before, but when it came to healers, uh, I would, I use Sarah a lot and I would like to give her the, the um, item, the Vigor Ball, I think it is, that turns her into a Master Monk. I would use that on her statistically I don't think that's the best choice but I liked her character she's with you from the very start and so I would focus on her a lot with that and then toward the later part of the game you meet another character she's also a secret character named Sheila that I would use with Sarah and then they're both master monks so it's sort of I didn't really use Karna uh, back in the day I, I, I skipped over her So what would your pick have been from Creed's Mansion? I would always pick
1: Tyron, just because of his strong mage spells. I didn't really value another healer. You had Sarah at the time, and Eric, the the centaur character. Never would ever play a centaur character. I've tried many times to make them work, they don't. I know you get the lance at the end, the evil cursed lance, but it never worked out for me. And I feel if you're going to do it, you might as well use Chester, but even he's pretty weak. Randolph, I honestly... I never really played him i mean i I felt that with the Red Baron and Jaha, he didn't really fit, but he might be viable, and
0: that's where I'm at. What about you? I agree uh centaurs were just not that good uh, as much as you might try. I just find them underwhelming. their defense was never high enough, and yeah, they just weren't that great uh you know Randolph. I would just roll Jaha instead. Uh, So ultimately, you you can go back and get everyone that you leave behind. Uh, It happens much later in the game that you can actually get back there. So you would need to grind them to get them up to level at that point in the game. But it is possible if you really want to. I would always go back and pick them up, but I would rarely actually make like get them leveled to the point that they could be in my end game. Force because that's where you're at by the time you can return. So, next up, we're talking Sonic the Hedgehog 2.
1: It's a classic side scroll platform game. Each level is great, uh, it has a different boss variant of Dr. Robotnik. You get rings as you go through, different power ups, and you can get use the rings for bonus stages or as health. So as long as you have a ring, you can't get hit and get killed. You have the rings float in the air, so it's important to be able to recollect your rings and make your last ring count, and then you go through each level, different different boss. This was actually the first game I ever owned, as in at all, of any game video game I ever owned. I can remember being at Sam's Club, which, uh, for those that don't know, is the local Costco for me at the time. And immediately to my right up there in the wall were just stacks and stacks of Sega Genesis systems. And I knew I had to have one. I looked at the coolest thing in the world. And at that time, I was excited because along with the Sega Genesis was a boxing game. And since I didn't have a Sega early on, I had to wait for a while. By the time I ended up getting my Sega, it was no longer the boxing game. It was Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Slightly mixed emotions, but I was super excited to have the Sega And as we've discussed previously, none of us could afford games. So Sego for me was an avenue that I could go to my friend and say, hey, let me borrow all of your games and play them. But I did have Sonic 2 and I ended up falling in love with it. It's just such a a phenomenal platforming game. Um, I remember my favorite level was the Casino Zone. I would just sit for hours playing the slot machine game to see how many coins I can get. I played the split screen versus multiplayer with my brothers just to see how well we could do. The main game was technically two players, but Tails was a little bit harder to play. The camera followed Sonic everywhere, so and you know, it was the fastest thing alive. So it'd be hard, it was always hard to stay on the screen. I was able to experience this more recently with my son, which I will want to talk about later. What were your initial thoughts on Sonic? Did you did
0: you ever play this growing up? Oh yeah, I think everybody played this growing up, uh, even people who didn't really play video games. Like you said, it was a pack-in with the Genesis system. Uh, not the only pack-in that ever existed, but it was probably the most popular. Um, and so most people had a copy of it. It was markedly better than the first game because you can actually do the Spin Dash move, which didn't exist in the first game. Most people kind of forget about that until they go back and try to revisit that first game. It plays very differently, but Sonic 2 uh, improved on the first game, and this was another game that I first experienced at my cousin's uh, on the Sega channel because, again, I didn't have the system at the time. And by the time I did get the system, I obviously put a lot of time in on this. Uh, also, at one of my friend's houses, we put in a lot of time on it. I was always intrigued by some of the secret areas you could get into and the levels, trying to find different paths. Uh, the art direction was really good. Just the the animations, the, how the sound effects, when you would hit an enemy, the pop that it would make. And the soundtrack was great. I, I, I really think that the, the sound chip in the Genesis produced some of the best video game music that's ever been produced, ever. Uh, And and I will say even to today, because I think that that sort of 16-bit era sound is a unique uh, art form that if you translate it into a full symphonic-type orchestra, it actually is very complex scoring that you'll get with some of these games. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you about here... If you get 50 rings and you hit one of those little checkpoint things, you know it spins around that little swirl of stars. And if you jump up into it, you can enter into the Chaos Emerald type bonus stage. Did you embark? How seriously did you embark on the quest to gain the Chaos Emeralds?
1: Have played a supersonic and he ends up he's pretty OP, but his time, the time you get to be supersonic, is dependent upon the rings you have. So he drains your rings over time. So it isn't terribly worth it, but it's the adventure that works and it's fun. And my you know, my son loved playing it, and that's my recent experience of Sonic is playing with him because I did get a Sega Genesis for my wedding. And I want to throw that back at you because I did get a Sega Genesis as a wedding gift and it had a lot of cool games that I've played with him. Shack Fu. I've played his his favorites, probably Altered Beast. And I know you were a part of that, but I, I honestly don't remember knowing the origins of that. So I don't know if you could, you know, I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, that was probably one of the best wedding gifts that anyone has ever received, uh, I would argue. And I don't remember the specifics, but all I know is that your brothers and I, we went in on it. I think there was a bit of a conspiracy between us. If I'm remembering correctly, we may have gone over to the old cash and culture that was by the college where your wedding was at or where we went to college. I think what happened was that we all went over there and got one and got some games that went with it and then brought it back. I, I, that must've been the only way that that could have happened, which I h- hate to, uh, to say uh, that store went out of business um, a couple years ago around the time of the pandemic. I think it still exists as a website, but the physical location is closed down. Wow. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> I will say though
1: that it, that gift has left a lasting memory. Oddly enough, in preparation for this episode, my son, before I started, asked me, Hey, Daddy, can you set this up? And I said, What do you want set up? Sega. And he hadn't played it for months, but he wanted to play Sega. So he's playing Sonic Pinball now, and he loves it. And part of the best part about being a dad is reliving the memories of games like Sonic and his innocence and joy with it. And I mentioned a little bit about Tails and Sonic and how that worked and how it's difficult to keep Tails on the screen he always wanted to be tails. He never wanted to be Sonic. I think for him, it was a little bit too serious and he was a little bit too nervous to do that. And so he'd be tails and I would wait for him. If tails goes off the screen, cause the camera only follows Sonic. If tails goes off the screen, he ends up teleporting and, flo- and, and like floating down where Sonic's at. So I would be patient. I know there's a time limit and I'm very competitive, but I would wait for him and he would, he would love to chime in at various points in the game. So in, in the hilltop zone, he would like jumping on the earth and crashing down into the tunnels. He At the end of a boss fight, he would like always like to jump on the button and save all the animals. He loved doing the ring races that you mentioned. That was his favorite part. And I, I personally hated it because I knew he would never get the actual emeralds. Because unfortunately, he's with me and he's hitting the mines and stuff. But I'm cheering him on. I'm making sure he's having fun. I'm congratulating him. Encouraging him, etc. But I know he would hit the mine, so we would never get the emerald, and I'd lose the fifty rings. And I was like, "But I, I would oh, never that's, tell that's him that, obviously."
0: <laughs> and until he's just... much older, and then someday he listens to this podcast, you
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen to this podcast and say, so, "Oh my gosh!" But so he can
0: understand all the sacrifices that you made. I, I honestly, that would be tough, especially as I know you are very competitive with your games, you know, that, that's, that takes, that probably takes a different mindset, you know, it's a completely different mindset, but I want to
1: make him enjoy his games as much as possible. I want the games to serve happiness connection with me, something to talk about and build his confidence up. That's what I use them for. I never want to as competitive as I am. And it's hard for me to separate it, but I do. I will say this though. <laughs> I wanted to beat the game and I've never beaten the game. And part of the difficulty is he and I would get to the end and I couldn't farm to get extra lives. And so I'd have to go face the extra boss, you know, the, the end boss rather, and I wouldn't beat the boss. And it was, you spend hours playing it. You want to, you want to beat the game, man. you want to beat the game. And I couldn't do it. And the issue with the games back then, of course, you know, you have to beat the entire game and, and Sonic, you're going through nine plus levels to get to the final boss. And then you have the opportunity to learn the mechanics. Unless you want to go on YouTube or some kind of other walkthrough, which I didn't do. That's how you learn the mechanics of the boss in a platform. You have to go through the entire game to learn the boss at the end. There's no practice mode. There's no checkpoint. There's no save point. And if you don't know the boss and you die, you restart the entirety of the game. Pretty problematic. And so, oddly enough, this competitive nature of me, it does exist. I can't separate it. Well, I do separate it, but I can't ignore it. And so when my family went away last summer for a, a few days, I said on my bucket list was <laughs> I'm going to beat Sonic the Hedgehog, too. And so I went at it and I, I did the end and I said, OK, we're going to get to the end. And I actually found out on my own on Unlimited Lives. I don't say glitch because it's part of the game, but I found a way to get an extra life box hundred rings, so it was, uh, ostensibly you could have unlimited lives. And so I was farming those lives. When lo and behold, and you will know this as a console player, early sixteen bit console player, the power plug c- came undone. No, and pulled uh. the game out, and that was it. And so I was like, I spent hours doing that. Devastation, man, devastation. And then, and then that dropped. So that's still on my bucket list to do, but I got to shelve that for a little bit. Unfortunately, I probably need a better power cord. I don't know if it's system related or it's power cord related, but unfortunately I lost everything.
0: And there's again, no checkpoints, no safe points. You're just out of luck. Oh, uh, well that, that has happened to all of us. It's um, it's, inf- it's infuriating. Uh, if, if the slightest bit of motion happens, that plug is coming out. It, it's, it has to be stationary or else you're just, you're asking for it at that point And it's, um, yeah, it's terrible, uh, So, but if you ever do, when you do, beat the game, we're going to definitely mark that occasion on the podcast, so make sure that you let us know about that. I have beaten it once, and it was very difficult. Uh, you do have to farm the lives, because the final boss, You just you have to learn the patterns, and if you don't farm, you won't learn them in time. And then you will just restart the game, like you mentioned. Next up, we have the co-op beat-em-up game, Streets of Rage 2. Now, Streets of Rage 2 is as different as you can get from some of the other games that we've talked about, which, by and large, are set in sort of fantasy-type environments in a way. This one... It is in the gritty streets of an urban-type environment. Uh, The entire idea of the game is that you're fighting your way to this boss at the end, and you're just taking on thugs left and right. Uh, They are random, in many cases, nameless, or at least generically named-type characters. There are bosses that have special attributes and moves and looks to them, character sprites to them but ultimately this being a beat em up it's just about having fun it's about walking through waves of enemies just giving them beatdowns and picking up items to use there's a whole host of weapons that you can find at your disposal they have knives they have lead pipes katanas even grenades that show up at different points and there are destructible parts too Bits of the environment, like different trash cans and things that you can punch and items will drop. Uh, In order to begin the game, you can either play single player or co-op. And you have different characters that you can choose from. There's Axel Stone, Blaze Fielding, Max Thunder Hatchet, and then Eddie Skate Hunter. As you can tell from the names, they're all pretty awesome, very 90s-tastic, and in my playthroughs, I generally would stick to either Axel or Blaze. They're more balanced characters. Max is big and brawny, but very slow. Eddie is really fast, but kind of uh, weak in a defensive sort of way, so I would gravitate toward those two, what I consider more main characters if if that's fair to say uh, there's sort of your generic like male and female character but anyway uh, you could do different combinations depending on who your uh, partner picked you know some characters i would argue work better together than others there were lots of different uh, moves you could do grapples throw enemies you know slam enemies to the ground i've always really loved beat em ups because they're low stress uh, they're not difficult compared to a lot of games in that era. They're just kind of like mindless fun. That like You just go through the environment and beat stuff up. Yeah, this was one of the most popular of the beat-em-up arcade genres. And this this
1: genre was really popular in the 90s. I remember a bunch of games out there existing. And yeah, it was a bunch of, you know, you basically stun-locked the guys as much as possible. You played the angles, hit them before they hit you. But yeah, I remember Double Dragon, Battle Toads. Simpsons, X-Men, Ninja Turtles, Golden Axe, prob- probably some others I'm missing. And this is pr- this is one of my favorites and I just love the co-op aspect of this game as long as all the others. You know, I mentioned Sonic recently about Tails and how frustrating that was to try to play it. And if I were playing with a friend, you wouldn't be able to really. But this game is cool because there's no need for split screen and everyone has the same experience at the same time. That makes it really cool. I will say that this is probably the, the game of all the beat-em-ups that I played the most and actually beat. I watched a walkthrough of this, kind of going through and prepping. And yeah, I remembered everything about it. But my experience is most memorable because I actually bought this on the Xbox 360 Arcade. So I, <laughs> I that's my recent experience. I paid money to get it on the Xbox 360 Arcade. That's how good of a game this was that I said, you know what? I want to get this on the Arcade. And as far as I know, they had online co-op you could play, but mostly it was just slightly better graphics. And then on the 360, and I just wanted to buy it because I loved it that much. It's that fun of a game. So that's my most recent experience of it. You're right. It's just fun. It's just you beat them up, you combo. You can try different characters. I never played Max as well. I refused to play him. Mained Axel, if someone wanted to play Axel, I would, I would play with Skate or Blaze, same as you and it's just fun. I remember some of the the enemies being cool. I remember the fat, you know, baseball hat guys. I remember the the guys who I who I thought were Doc Brown. Right? Scott clones with the jackets on, the different colored jackets. <laughs> I always thought they were Doc Brown from Back to the Future. And I like throwing the shurikens. And yeah, it was just really fun. I just I loved it and yeah, I remember beating it pretty recently because I bought it for the 360.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, speaking of recently, I mean, they there is a more recent entry, Streets of Rage 4, and it's great. Uh, if you haven't played it, I 100% recommend. It's just a modern version of, of the game. Um, you know, this game was released in North America in 1992. Japan in 1993, kind of unusual. Normally... Games came out in Japan first, but this one, I don't know exactly why. Maybe because it was set in basically a New York-type city. It was designed more for an American audience, but a lot of games were designed that way back then. So, I don't know, some strange uh, thing on the release there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that Streets of Rage 2, it does improve on the original, but it it maintains that same sort of play style that all the beat-em-ups would have. There's just something special about this one. Again, the music is is great. It's actually based on EDM, so it really has this just fun vibe to it. Uh, You just want to keep playing, see what the next level's environment is going to be like, which are all unique. Um, It's just one of those games that you could sit with a friend and One of the things for me that's important about beat-em-ups is that you could do them on couch co-op. And often when you could do a two-player game in these days, they tended to be versus matches. Rarely were you playing cooperatively. And I always preferred that because I was never super competitive with games. I just liked the experience of playing the game. And this allows you to do that alongside one of your friends and that's, again, what we talked about before something that is kind of rare these days. Uh, but back then, that, that was a really great element of it. Uh, one thing that I need to, to ask you, if you punched a trash can or a telephone booth and an apple or a chicken fell out onto the ground, are you eating that apple or chicken? Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> it's interesting you
1: say apple because I
0: was wondering what the, I, I always
1: wondered what that was. I, I, I it kind of looked like a pie to me. I guess maybe I guess you're saying it's an apple, which makes sense. But yeah, the chicken and you know that
0: confirmed. Yeah, for whatever I did, reason, I did look it was it the up. chicken on a
1: on a plate. You know, and that was in Goldnecks too, where you'd you'd get like the chicken on a plate. I don't know what, why that was the common thing as opposed to like a heart or a med kit or something like reasonable. Apparently, food
0: brought you life or whatever, but <laughs> that was always how it worked though. Like in even like Castlevania, like you would hit a stone in the wall and there would be a turkey or a chicken inside and you just eat it and you gain back your health. I wish that that's how things worked in a real life. That would be fantastic. Uh, at least in golden Axe, because that was like a medieval fantasy type, like Conan, the barbarian type environment. I could imagine like you think of guys at like big feasts eating chicken off the bone and stuff like that. But in streets of rage, this is set, I think either contemporary or maybe even future essentially New York. And yet for some reason you're eating chickens off the ground. But yeah, I did uh, check before we recorded. It was in fact an apple and a chicken. That's, that's what it says. Uh, on the wiki about this stuff. So yeah. I mean a bigger
1: question is how those <sighs> how those guys were able to breathe fire. I mean how was that oh yeah how is that a thing? <laughs> and then how are you able to take bullets for the final boss without getting immediately one-shotted, you know? Yes.
0: Well these are questions that <laughs> uh, are probably best left unanswered. I, See, I would say these are things now that people would not you know they give like a six out of ten. This isn't realistic.
1: Back then we're just having fun, man. We're just trying to We're just having fun. And this was a very good alternative to a lot of the other combat games, like Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, where you would, or Tekken, where you would be fighting back and forth. And honestly, those games were never really fun in this way. It was very, very competitive, like you said. And someone was happy, someone wasn't happy, depending on how good you were. And this was a good way to do the beat-em-up, where you're together, fighting bosses all unique in different ways, integrating different types of combat in different ways. But you're working together and that's that's really cool.
0: Yeah, I I love that part of it. Um, And I think that that's something that you do miss a lot. I mean, I'm sure there are games nowadays like um, like Back for Blood and things like that, where you can do a cooperative type game. But this being a couch co-op, you know, it's a more. It's something you do with your friends, like in the physical space. And that's just something that I kind of miss. But uh... let, me, let me pause you here for a second.
1: Back for Blood is technically not a couch co op, crazy as it is, because for whatever reason, they decided to abandon that. So in order to play Back for Blood with my wife, she has to be on my Xbox. We can't split screen. So I have to have her on the Xbox system on a TV. I have to be on my separate PC. Now, thankfully, the laptop we have is able to run it, but I have to log into my separate Xbox account in order to play Back for Blood on a separate PC. All right, so next up we have King's Bounty. It's a top down army building turn based tactics game. So, in the beginning, this, the story is you're tasked with saving the king before he passes from an illness by obtaining the scepter. The scepter is hidden somewhere in the world in a tile, and it's a random location within the world. And in order to find the scepter, you have to reveal different puzzle pieces one block at a time. And it's a bit of a different game because you can figure out the puzzle as early as you can figure out the picture. So as you reveal different pieces of the puzzle, as if you can figure out what the picture is within the context of the world, you can solve it early. But you are on a timer. And sometimes, for instance, the game will have a memorable structure by it or a landscape that you recognize. So you can find it faster. Maybe it has a tree, a certain water formation. It could be one of the dungeon, wagon, etc., And you could find it really quick. Other times it could just be a, a green space and you won't have any idea where it is. And you'll have to take more time, but each dig requires time. So you can't just keep guessing over and over again. So you really want to make sure you know what it is. So in order to reveal the scepter and One puzzle piece at a time. You go on this epic adventure through four different continents. There are 17 different villains you capture, as well as different artifacts. And each villain capture, or each artifact that you gain, reveals one of the tiles of the picture. And the main game is to help capture the villains. You recruit troops from a variety of different races. You build your army. Then you fight the battles. That's when that becomes turn-based. So the exploration part is actually live where you're walking around, you're trying to dodge the different units or engage the different units, depending on what you want to do. But when you actually fight the battles, it's turn-based. Did you ever play this game?
0: Okay, this is one that I did not play or even know that it existed back in the day. Um, And and that's really strange because this is exactly the type of game that I would go for. But somehow, I just never encountered it. I, I did look into it and I saw that Uh, It was based originally off of a DOS game that was released in 1990 and then the Genesis version came out in 91 and it looked like they did make a number of changes and probably even improvements to it in doing that transition. The only thing I can think is that this is certainly a much older Genesis game and you know, I, I would have been four years old when it was released now, but You still encountered it somehow. And so uh, I did eventually play it when you told me about it in college that, you know, it it was an epic game and that I needed to go through it. But how did you encounter the game? Where did you find this? Well, this is one of the games. So again, I keep mentioning my friend who had all the games
1: in the world that we would play. This was one of basically two games that he would go to Blockbuster and rent. And so the other game was Might and Magic, which... I could talk about a lot and that was a cool game because we each had a different character we were named after. So we felt like we were part of the, the journey or whatever, but basically he would go to blockbuster on a Friday, see what they had. And you mentioned shining Force in terms of getting the game and having to do it multiple times. Cause you can't beat it in one sitting. And so these were the games we kind of juggled back and forth for a long time where it was like, Hey, what do we have? And so King's bounty might magic. So this was one of them. Um, that's how I was exposed to it, and then obviously going back, playing the ROM, I think now it's even an, an abandoned war game you can get, but that was my exposure to it. it, was just from my friend, one of the games that he was able to experience.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Might and Magic, because I was reading a little bit more about this one, uh, because while I have played it through, it's been a long time, and there were a lot of people comparing it to Heroes of Might and Magic and saying that it was sort of a progenitor to it in in the way that things uh, developed with that series. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I disagree with that assessment. I actually I'm, I want
1: to talk about King's Bounty in the context of Heroes of Might and Magic because I think those are similar. Might and Magic's not similar at all. I mean, there's, there's no army building, there's no turn-based combat in the same way uh, where you're dealing with tactics and... Mind Magic is more like a Final Fantasy game as opposed to a tactical game, and King's Bounty, honestly, is very similar to Here's a and Magic. I think Here's a Mind Magic makes King's Bounty better, and I'm a huge fan of Here's a Mind Magic Three. I could, you know, we'll do an episode on that. It's one of my big games. It's a game I recently played. Doing the again, there's a lot of stuff I can talk about, um, but a lot of the issues I have with King's Bounty are honestly fixed by Here's a Mind Magic Three. So. A lot of King's Bounty's exploration is just you're wandering around and you're running into like a treasure. And that's basically the thing you find, treasure chests. But most of them are identical. It's just gold you end up distributing to the peasants. There's not a whole lot of truly unique items or tactics in terms of roaming around. You're just trying to find as many chests as you can to get your distribution up, which lets you recruit more units. And here's where my magic improves that a lot. Now, the crux of the game is you're trying to recruit an army to fight these different villains to get the scepter pieces. And so it's divided into different camps and I don't know offhand what they're called, but basically there's the cave units, which are like the dragons or you have the wagon units, which are like the nomads or barbarians. You have the fairies, fairy hall, which is like a tree, which is your gnomes and your fairies and your druids. You have your dungeons which are your undead creatures like your skeletons, vampires, demons. And so you're going around collecting all these different troops to try to make the strongest army you can. Here's a Might and Magic 3 has it where instead of roaming around, you're building it within your own castle. And instead of having the live exploration of King's Bounty, which is really just dodging different creatures, you have turn-based movement. And instead of just finding random treasure chests, which don't really do anything, you're getting unique items. Unique encounters, unique experiences. King's Bounty is basically outside of the different artifacts you collect, which are just one time stat bonuses, there's not a whole lot of uniqueness to exploration. Really, you're just the coolest thing about King's Bounty is when you find the map to the next area. So when you're in area one, you go to area two, to area three, to area four. Those are really the huge chests you get, as opposed to Here's a Mind Magic, where hey, wow you get this really cool sword or this really cool item or this really cool encounter. Don't get that in King's bounty. And part of the issue with the villains, I love the villains in the game because they have cool stories behind, at least in King's bounty, cool stories behind, behind who they are, but the actual encounters with the villains, there's nothing special about them. I mean, they try to cater the current, the units in the game, I should say to what the person is. So you know an undead villain will have undead creatures etc but the actual villains don't really influence the combat at all there's nothing they don't cast spells they don't you, you don't attack the villain itself you're just attacking his army here's my magic 3 says hey we're not going to do that we're also going to have each battle have a hero that's unique so the, so each hero is going to have unique spells unique items etc so i think here's on my magic 3 honestly improves on king's bounty in every way possible but it doesn't depreciate the beauty of King's Bounty and what it was. And it, I think King's Bounty paved the way for Heroes of My Magic 3. But yeah, I don't connect Might and Magic at all with Heroes of Might Magic 3, despite the the name.
0: Yeah, so as far as that, I mean, uh, Heroes of Might and Magic 3, it looks like it didn't come out until roughly 1999 to 2000 in that range. So... It's it's to be expected that it's going to improve in every way on King's Bounty, but I think that King's Bounty coming out a whole decade prior uh, shows how special it was at the time. And another thing that I wanted to ask you about it: when you select your hero class to start, you have some options: barbarian, knight, paladin, sorceress. Who do you pick?
1: Yeah, so I honestly haven't done a deep dive into the different uh, heroes because I honestly don't think they matter that much. I would always pick the Sorceress because she would start with spell capacity. And at least early in the game, being able to zap enemies is pretty important. I know the different characters would increase your leadership, which goes to the troops you can recruit or the amount of income you can make. But yeah, I, always, I would always pick the Sorceress just because she had spells. You don't got to buy any spellbook or anything like that. And they would add to the combat. I mean, at the end of the day, King's Bounty isn't really a balanced game. <laughs> like, Here's a Mind Magic 3. King's Bounty does have tiers of characters, just like Here's a Mind Magic 3, where you have your low tier of the, the knight class, which starts in the castle in King's Bounty. Uh, Here's my Magic 3, same thing. Each different class has a tier. Usually it's a different color dragon or whatever, or titan, etc. But in King's Bounty... Dragons are just so incredibly overpowered that to even discuss balance, honestly, doesn't really fit with the game. I will say this. I've beaten the game many times. I've watched two playthroughs. I've watched the world record playthrough. No one's actually beaten the game naturally. And what I mean by naturally is going around recruiting troops week by week, letting them repopulate recruiting because you do have a recruit limit. And then each week you do get additional recruits but so do your bosses. And the final boss of King's Bounty is a wreck dragon breath who has hundreds of dragons and they're so disproportionately stronger than everything else and they're immune to magic and they can fly. So you can't kite them. You can't use archers to move around them. And they're just so much stronger than everybody else. And unfortunately in King's Bounty, the dragon spawn is, you basically have one dragon spawn. You have to try to go there week in and week out and Erect Dragon Breath gets extra dragons too. So you, yes, you get additional troops from every other spawning place as well. Dragons are just that much better than everything else. And so I've never been able to beat it straight up. And so what you end up having to do, and I was able to figure this out, is there's a spell called Raise Army where you raise knights, and then you raise knights, and you raise knights, and you just you buy a hundred of those spells over and over. You raise a thousand some knights. They end up being out of control that's the that's the down you know that's the downturn of using that is they're out of control but then you use a calm army spell and then they're fine and you go fight a wreck dragon breath and you beat them with a thousand knights so it's a a, i mean it's a cheese i mean it's a cheese but i don't know how else you can beat them because dragons are that much better than everything else there's no other way to really beat them in my opinion i've never seen it i don't think you can do it and while it is cheese it's necessary again you can't even use spells against them and i think it's designed that way maybe because in essence again i mentioned the puzzle so erect dragon breath's in the center of the puzzle he's the last puzzle piece you need so ostensibly that's where you're digging right so it's a tile-based game and so when you want to search for the spot you're going to go where erect dragon breath is that's where you're digging so you don't really need to find him as long as you can write, mean, I don't know what piece he would be in that you're digging in that would be so such a unique piece that you wouldn't have figured out the location of the spot to dig without him. So I think it's just more of a, you can do it if you want to, because he's, he's cool. <laughs> it's a cool fight and you feel more accomplished, but you don't need to do it. And I, I think it was designed that way, unfortunately, but it's completely imbalanced. I just, unfortunately, the end game, you know, it, it's, it's balanced up until that point. You can have really cool fights really cool units trying to balance between your vampires and demons versus your knights and cavalry and your ogres and trolls and all these different cool fantasy characters up until a wreck dragon breath because he is the dragons are just insane they're just so much better and they fly and you can't beat that
0: well i mean that wouldn't be the only game that has balance issues especially from this era uh, you know there was no such thing as patching in these days. You know, nowadays games come out p- completely broken at launch and people will buy them anyway because, well, they'll patch it later. They'll patch it later. And while patching is great because it lets you get updates, make the game better, it, it has led to that problem as well of these unfinished products coming out. But back in those days, uh, you... Whatever the cartridge was, that was it. It was game over. Like it, So, not to say sometimes broken games didn't even come out back then, because they certainly did. But generally, if a game was programmed to be a certain way, that was intentional, I would argue. And so probably with King's Bounty, for whatever reason, that was a choice that they made. But I feel like overall, I mean, the whole experience of the game, like you said, is more balanced it's really just sort of that end game where it goes off the rails a little bit it's still something that people should check out especially if you're interested in this sort of you know the sort of strategy top-down recruitment type idea i mean it's a pretty unique game for the for the genesis I, I can't think of much else that's that's similar to it at all yeah he i think he might be the first boss that even has dragons
1: to be honest I mean At least to that number. So it basically goes from almost no dragons at all to him. So basically, yeah, up until that point, you're getting a really balanced game where you're managing an army, trying to recruit as many as you can from whatever camps you want. It's cool to explore all the different units and they all have different abilities and different strengths and weaknesses. And it's fun to explore and try them out and just try the different combinations. Again, up until wreck Dragon Breath, really fun game. And I know we talk a lot about soundtracks, but man, that, that soundtrack's banging. I, it's, it's phenomenal. I just, I could listen to that on loop and it is a loop. I mean, it's basically a, it's a few songs on loop, but they're amazing. And it just keeps you, keeps you in the mood, man. I, I love it.
0: Well, those are all of our games for today, but there are many, many more from Genesis, the 16 bit era in general, So maybe if you experience these for the first time or if you, like us, have all of these memories from the past, let us know on social medias. Tell us your stories, your experiences, and we'll catch you next time. Follow us on Instagram at The Nostalgic Millennial Podcast and Twitter at The Nostalgic MP. And don't forget to send your comments and questions, which may be featured on a future episode. Until next time, when we return to the 1990s.